I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From M&A rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Mr. Nova. Will you first explain what the general procedure is when you make an arrest? Once we place somebody under arrest, we transport them to the 30th precinct. Once they're at the 30th precinct, they're searched and they're processed. After that process is over, they're transported downtown to central booking. This is a reading of testimony given by George Nova to Assistant U.S. Attorney in the Southern District of New York, Michael Horowitz during a federal trial in early 1995. After a defendant is transferred downtown, where does he or she go next? After that, the officer goes to the complaint room, which is where he sits and waits to speak to an assistant district attorney to give the facts of the case. The assistant district attorney draws up a complaint. After it's drafted, the officer reviews it and signs it. Now, Officer Nova, The various times that you went to the complaint room and spoke to assistant district attorneys, did you ever intentionally make false statements to them? Yes, sir. What was the reason why you did not truthfully describe the circumstances of those arrests? Because in order to justify the arrest, we had to alter what happened and change the story around. Michael Horowitz. One of the things we did with our cooperators is have them go through every single one of their arrests because we needed to know, are there any cases in there where they perjured themselves, where there was other information we should be aware about? So the DA's office would pull for us their stack of arrests, paperwork, and they went through it. The Manhattan DA's office pours through more than 2,000 cases involving arrests made by the 3-0 cops who've already pled guilty to federal charges. And that's when Dan Castleman, DA Morgenthau's right-hand man, finds out they have a massive problem. Loads of perjuries, all committed under the jurisdiction of their office. Castleman. There was a guy in the 30th precinct who was absolutely notorious for taking guns off the street. 
People thought he was a wizard. I handled some of his cases. He was among the best testifiers I've ever seen. We found out he almost certainly committed perjury wholesale. I was beside myself that that might have happened. Did I overlook something? Was there some telltale sign? But it's a little hard when you're dealing with a cop who you normally would trust and has a very good reputation and is a star witness. Nannery's Raider Joe Walsh fesses up to lying under oath more than 75 different times. But Walsh says that the DA's office had to know about his lies because so many of them were so obviously false. Everybody knew. There's no way on God's green earth that you keep making the same arrest. Oh yeah, I pull over a car and I saw a clear plastic bag in the back seat. Or you're walking behind somebody and they dropped a clear plastic bag, you picked it up, see it to be cocaine or crack, you go up and make the arrest. The DA's office and the police department rely on each other to make cases. And Walsh says there was an unspoken agreement that no matter how far flung the details of his arrest seemed, some assistant district attorneys never questioned them. You would ADA shop down there to get the ADA that you wanted. We would bring a cup of coffee, bring a bagel. Hey, we're going out to lunch. You want to come out to lunch with us? Next time you get a good case, bring it over to me. It's like, oh, okay. And then they get a nice uh, case to try. Here's Bill Burmeister, head of the public corruption unit in the DA's office. We had to review every single one of their cases and determine whether or not we believed that there had been perjury. If there had been perjury that resulted in a conviction, we needed to affirmatively take steps to overturn that. We're going to have to unravel these cases. Even if the defendant was legitimately in possession of drugs, if he's convicted on the basis of perjury, we have to reverse that conviction. Burmeister and Castleman overturn 125 convictions. Some of the defendants were completely innocent. But 70% of those whose cases are tossed later admitted that they were committing crimes at the time of their arrests. Like the convicted drug dealer who complained to the DA's office that he actually had three kilos of cocaine rather than two. He's released from prison as well. He even sues the city for damages, but that case gets dropped. Others don't, and their lawsuits end up costing the city millions of dollars. So the cops who'd made up stories to make sure that drug dealers got locked up, the noble cause corruption, had actually done the very thing that gets them released. The press calls it testifying, and it grows into the biggest perjury scandal in New York State history. But the DA's office isn't just overturning cases due to perjury. They begin building new cases, too. Bill Burmeister. We were reviewing the arrests to determine whether or not we should be dismissing cases, number one. Number two, 
where there were other officers who had testified and perjured themselves, we prosecuted them. If you've sworn to tell the truth and you don't do it, you can't be a police officer again. When Burmeister says other officers, he means the partners of the cops who'd already pled guilty to federal crimes. And long after he was first busted, George Nova offers up a name the DA's office hasn't heard. Here's Frank O'Hara. If I'm George Nova, after a while, I'm thinking, how did I get in this situation? How did they know about this? How did they know about that? He figured it out. The only way they could know it was Barry Brown. Shortly after I was working with George, we arrested a guy with a gun in a vestibule of a building. And George was like, oh, say it happened on the street. But a couple days later, when I saw him again, he goes, oh, I got something on you. Nova burned him. Nova figured out that Barry had to be part of his demise. Nova knew Barry was probably the guy that did it. Nova tells Castleman and Burmeister that in one of his arrests, he and Barry Brown were given information about a drug dealer. When they searched his apartment without a warrant, they found drugs and a gun inside and arrested the man. But they gave the arrest to another 30th Precinct cop to process, and Nova told him a different story, that the man dropped his bag of cocaine on the street, and he and Brown chased him into the apartment building vestibule where they made the arrest. But once Nova had told that story to the cop they gave the collar to, he had to continue that lie when he testified against the alleged dealer. And so did Barry Brown. The man was serving his fourth year of a 15-to-life sentence when he was released. Dan Castleman. If you're a responsible prosecutor, you don't ignore perjury. You can't allow it to happen, particularly with police officers. There are consequences. And we made plans to arrest Barry Brown. I remember reaching back to Agliero about it, and I said, well, you know, we arrested this guy, the drugs were there, they were his drugs. He was like, it was okay, you were the captain. And then he was like, hey, you gotta do whatever you gotta do to protect your cover. Morgenthau was against the formation of the Mullen Commission. And now you're gonna have a redundant commission that has to prove itself. And the only way to prove itself is to make cases and that can lead to shortcuts. If the guy had it, he had it. If it was on him, if it was in the car, if it was under the floor, that's how things were done. There was lots and lots, hundreds of arrests that happened in that precinct where that was happening. I tried to stay away from it. Bob Morgenthau could be vindictive. He does famously hold grudges. And if he thought you know, someone had wronged him, he didn't forget it. And he would look for an opportunity to make you remember. I'm Zach Levitt, and this is The Set. Episode 10, If He Had It, He Had It. The protocol is, you notify IAD, we're going to arrest the cop, and that's that. 
and either they're going to help us arrest them or not. And usually they did. Because, you know, it's, it's complicated to arrest a cop at his precinct. And it was important to Bratton that cops be arrested at precincts. Dan Castleman has his office reach out to Walter Mack, the NYPD's deputy commissioner and head of internal affairs. Mack was hired by Commissioner Bratton's predecessor, Ray Kelly. And when he went with Kelly to meet Barry Brown at the Tudor City Hotel after the Mullen Commission hearings, Mack swore an oath to Brown that he'd never divulge Officer Otto's true identity. There was a lot of conversation about trustworthiness. Walter Mack promised me that he would never give out my identity. Now, Mac hears that Barry Brown is about to be arrested by the DA's office, and it puts him in a tough spot. If he tells anybody who Otto is, even Commissioner Bratton, he's broken his oath. If he doesn't, Barry Brown, one of the biggest reasons the 30th Precinct case got made, could go to jail. I remember the issue of disclosing Barry, Officer Otto, was a sore subject for me. I was adamant at not. I had a commitment. When you make a commitment, you have to honor it. From his first day as commissioner, Bill Bratton had felt like Walter Mack was keeping him in the dark about the 30th Precinct investigation. And now he finds out that Officer Otto, the Mullen Commission's biggest whistleblower, is about to be arrested. Bratton. That was another axe to grind with Walter, the idea of pretty far into this thing, giving what he thought he needed to give to me rather than give me the whole story. Needless to say, when we determined that Otto was in fact Brown, I certainly wasn't happy about that. I knew for certain at that point in time, I was gonna dramatically shake up internal affairs and I was gonna get rid of Walter Mack. It was a Friday afternoon, I got a call show up at the commissioner's office, and I was fired by Commissioner Bratton. Walter Mack's promise to Barry Brown is what ultimately costs him his job. But now, Commissioner Bratton has a potential PR disaster on his hands. He makes a phone call to Robert Morgenthau and tells him he's coming directly to his office to see him. Dan Castleman was there. Bratton came in and he said, I understand you're about to arrest Officer Barry Brown. You can't do that. And we said, why not? And he said, because he's Officer Otto. I was shocked. And Morgenthau was shocked. And I said, well, I'm not sure that changes anything. We were not pleased that uh, this action was being taken against Brown, but we had no ability to effectively push back on it. It was the district attorney's prerogative. Bratton explains that not only was Barry Brown a valuable contributor to the Mullen Commission and the investigation into the 3-0, but that as a field associate for IAD, he was also being instructed by his internal affairs handler every step of the way. 
He was being encouraged to, well, you got to do what you got to do, but you got to keep your identity secret to protect himself, protect his undercover identity. Morgenthau and Castleman tell Commissioner Bratton that before they make an arrest, they're going to dig a little more into Brown's case. And that's when Frank O'Hara receives a call, telling him he needs to come answer some questions at the DA's office. They didn't tell me fully what the interview was going to be about, except it was Barry Brown. And when I got there, they had an investigator there taking notes. I was being interrogated by Dan Castleman. What I knew when I knew about Barry Brown, and the thrust of it was perjury. O'Hara says Castleman asks him if he fully vetted Barry Brown about his perjuries before using him as the opening witness at the Mullen Commission hearings. My answer was, I was looking at the big picture. Ripping off the drug dealers, selling guns, selling drugs, shooting drug dealers in a hallway while in uniform. Perjury was on a back burner. I could tell the way his body language reacted, his facial expression and the follow-up questions, that he thought that I avoided asking Barry about perjury because I didn't want to know about it. And that wasn't true. Now, I got some questions. Did you conduct an internal investigation into your complaint room in the Manhattan DA's office about all the perjury that went on? I didn't want to get too adversarial with him. You don't pull the lion's tail when you're in the lion's den. But I felt that, you know, I got a problem here. This guy's after me. And I wasn't too happy about that. And I'm saying to myself, gee, he he doesn't have Milt Marlin in here. He doesn't have Joe Armeo in here because they didn't have to show up. I had to show up because I was still in law enforcement. Did they tell me I was a target of a criminal investigation? No. But the questions I was being asked led me to believe that maybe that I allowed perjury to happen and didn't do anything about it. So when I left that interrogation, I was very upset, very upset. And I realized I'm the only one they can get their hands on from the Mile Commission, along with Barry Brown. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. 
and why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Amy Poehler here to tell you about a new improvised show from Paper Kite Podcasts, the team that brought you Say More with Dr. Sheila. Check out our new parody podcast, Women Talking About Murder. It's a show about women talking about murder. Every episode features special guests, twists, turns, and the mystery of a missing co-host. Available on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Barry Brown was not only going to be prosecuted, he was going to be fired. His life would have been destroyed. This is Richard Emery. Emery's been a prominent civil liberties attorney in Manhattan for decades. I took Barry on because of his integrity and the plight that he was placed in. It was in a very intense time in the city, and he had been heroic, to say the least. And I felt very strongly that the equities of his situation were outrageous in the way he was being treated. I went down to the DA's office with Richard Emery to talk to him about what had happened on the cases. And I was just shocked that I was going to be possibly charged with something. Barry Brown tells Dan Castleman that his internal affairs handler, Lieutenant Agliero, had given him the okay to perjure himself so he could keep his identity as a field associate concealed and continue to provide information to IAD. I thought that everything I did was authorized. I I didn't think there was going to be any problems. But that wasn't the case. He did tell us that he told his IED handler that he had committed perjury. And we asked him, did you tell the Mullen Commission? And he said, I tried to, but they didn't really want to hear about it. And we thought that was pretty interesting. And probably consistent with what our view of the Mullen Commission was. Those were things that could have all came out that didn't. I wasn't hiding anything. I only put myself in those situations because I was trying to do the right thing. I wasn't some psycho that was reporting corruption and then doing something else on the on the other side. This is just not the case. It's not how it was. And, you know, I just felt that I could have, should have been protected more. And I wasn't. I felt that I was taken advantage of by internal affairs, by the lieutenant, and, and, and maybe even somewhat by the Mullen Commission. I felt badly for Barry Brown. But I can't go back and change time. I have to confront the reality that exists before us. And at that moment, the reality was, here's a guy who, for whatever reason, committed perjury in my courthouse. And you can't be a cop if you do that. Do I think Barry Brown is a bad guy? No, I think he was 
misled and misguided. Robert Morgenthau was against the formation of the Mullen Commission from the start. And it was no secret that he was upset at Judge Mullen for bringing the case to the feds instead of his office. And now, Morgenthau has this information land in his lap, that the star witness of the Mullen Commission has admitted to committing perjury, which, if that ever got out, could raise some serious concerns about Judge Mullen and the commission itself. Barry Brown's attorney, Richard Emery. Mullen was this person of enormous integrity. He had this quality of being above the fray at every level. And Mullen knew Morgenthau inside out. He knew what a sleazebag, in my opinion, Morgenthau was. And how Morgenthau would kowtow to the moneyed and influential and politically powerful interests. And he felt, I think, that Morgenthau would not get the results that would stand for the historical importance of what the Mullen Commission had developed as evidence. As a result of the choice that Mullen made to refer these cases to the federal authorities, Morgenthau was livid. He was apoplectic that he was being sidelined, that he was being marginalized in this historic event. So the result of that was Morgenthau was stung. He was angry and he wanted to do anything to get back at Malin. And the way he fixed upon was to sully Barry Brown. Richard was beside himself that we would consider arresting Barry Brown. And as far as getting back at the Malin Commission, it had nothing whatever to do with that. There's ultimately a dilemma. What do you do with a cop who committed perjury? He cannot testify in court ever again. His testimony would be useless. Assistant U.S. Attorney in the Southern District, Michael Horowitz, is watching all of this unfold. As I was seeing what was happening with Barry Brown and the issues he was dealing with, I came to appreciate how difficult it is to blow the whistle on law enforcement corruption and police corruption. Perjury is among the worst things that can happen to the criminal justice system. On the other hand, you know, this is someone who, by all accounts, did extraordinary things to bring to light wrongdoing that was widespread, endemic, and what message does it send to others who want to blow the whistle? U.S. Attorney in the Southern District, Mary Jo White. You don't get an exemption because you're a whistleblower from murder, mayhem, and lesser crimes, right, that ought to be prosecuted. But with Barry Brown, there was no such serious criminal conduct, to say the least. And it sends a horrible message to prosecute somebody in that situation if, if you do it. And so there's good reason to question the motives. If they wanted to, they could have given Barry a total pass. A total pass. They didn't give him a pass. Why? They wanted flesh. 
It's February of 1995. While Brown's future rests in the hands of the DA's office, details about Officer Otto begin to appear in the press. Newsday prints an article saying that Otto was George Nova's partner in the 30th Precinct. So at that point, anybody who knew me knew exactly the fact that I had worked with George. And it was out there. And I immediately started receiving phone calls from people that knew me, cops in the 30th Precinct. Is it true? Are you Officer Otto? What's going on? I remember I denied it at first because I didn't know what else to do, but there was no denying it. I was the rat. In the same article, it says that Robert Morgenthau's investigation of this key Mullen Commission witness is, quote, vindication of his long-standing position that an independent commission can do as much harm as good. In a follow-up story one month later, Newsday reveals Officer Otto's real name. When Barry's identity became public, I have no idea who planted that story or gave up Barry's true identity. When you see something like that, you ask, what's the motivation to give up Barry's real name? It's a vengeful act. Once his identity is out, the NYPD transfers Brown to a different detective squad to try to keep him safe. We would gather information on where suspects were that were wanted for homicides and robberies, old cases that they weren't able to solve. And we would go looking for them at old addresses that they used to live, their parents' houses, addresses of girlfriends, addresses that they had listed on their arrest reports. And I remember I was always sent to cover certain areas by myself. I was told, cover the roof or cover the back fire escape, go in the alley and wait to see if the guy comes out. And I was afraid, you know, that I was going to be shot in an alleyway or something was going to happen. I was going to be thrown off a roof. I remember how upset and depressed I was. And I remember that Frank was really worried about me. I think maybe he was afraid I was going to eat my gun or something. Brown continues working under these conditions for the next seven months as his case drags. More than enough time for him to consider who leaked his identity. I think the information was put out by the DA's office, by Robert Morgenthau's office. I think that someone in his office, maybe even him, compromised my identity because they were upset with the Mullen Commission. And when they started investigating me, they were trying to get more information to see if there was more than perjuries there. So they leaked my name out to help their investigation to see what they could come up with. He really wanted to embarrass Judge Mullen. And if it would have came forward that Officer Otto was a drug dealer, was ripping off drug dealers and taking payments, that it would have really discredited the Mullen Commission and made them look really bad. And that's what he wanted to do. And they were waiting to see if anything would come forward. And I never did anything wrong, so nobody ever had anything to say. And by them exposing my identity and leaking my name out, it put my life at risk. 
the leak itself, all fingers point to Morgenthau. I still firmly believe, whether Castleman knows or not, that this was Morgenthau at his worst. Typical Morgenthau of peddling information to pander to the press and serve his own purposes, which he did regularly. Barry Brown and Richard Emery can hypothesize about whatever they want to, but it doesn't make it true. I was never present when Morgenthau told anybody about Barry Brown. He had his own dealings with the press, obviously. But I can tell you this, if he held a grudge and he wanted to get back at someone, Morgenthau didn't leave fingerprints. Officer Nova, after you became friendly with Wanchi, how frequently did you go to his store? Just about every day that I was working. Then one day, my partner was outside, and I was in Wanchi's store. And he called me over to the side. And he told me that the drug dealers from the corner of 140th Street in Amsterdam wanted to leave some money for me for Christmas. And I discussed it with him, and then I told him that I would only accept it if the money came through him. That I didn't want money from them personally. Who was your partner you left in the car? Officer Barry Brown. Did you share any of the money that you received through Wanchi with Officer Brown? No, I didn't. Did you tell Officer Brown about the fact that you were receiving payments through Wanchi from drug dealers? No, I didn't. Did you ever receive any money from Wanchi in Officer Brown's presence? No, I did not. What was the reason why you didn't inform Officer Brown of the payments or share the money with him? Because I was afraid he would turn me in. Why did you think that? Because he was a good cop. And I didn't think he would cover up for me. I figured he would report me. George Nova testified that Barry Brown was a good cop during a federal trial in early 1995. But then he told the DA's office that Brown had committed perjury alongside him. Months later, Brown's future has yet to be decided on by Robert Morgenthau. When the arrest in the 30th finally came, it should have been Barry Brown's moment of triumph. But instead of being honored, Brown discovered the district attorney was about to have him arrested as just another crooked cop in the 30th. It's October 15, 1995, when 60 Minutes airs this piece about Brown's case. If the accusations against Brown were hard to believe, it's because George Nova, Brown's old partner, only made those accusations after learning that Brown was Officer Otto, and after he had been told that he could hope for a lighter sentence if he fingered other cops. Do you feel that you have anything to be ashamed of in your career? I don't have anything to be ashamed of. And what did you think then when you found out that the DA's office might be targeting you? I was shocked that everything that I did for the department that I was still a subject of a criminal investigation was very upsetting. 
Detective Frank O'Hara, investigator for the Mullen Commission, which was created to investigate police corruption, says that Brown was the reason they were able to expose the biggest police scandal in decades. Barry Brown got you in the door. Uh, he kicked the door wide open. One of your colleagues told us that every honest cop is watching to see what happens to Barry Brown. That could be. It could be. And I'm sure the, the naysayers out there are just waiting to say if he gets hurt or if he gets leaves the job or whatever. See, I told you so. You know, keep your mouth shut. Don't rock the boat. Don't get involved. Veteran crime reporter John Miller just stepped down after serving a tour as New York City's deputy police commissioner. The last big name in police corruption, uncovering police corruption in New York, is Frank Serpico. How would you compare Barry Brown and Frank Serpico? I have a lot of respect for Frank Serpico and what he did, but he's no Barry Brown. It turns out that the DA, Robert Morgenthau, had no idea that Brown was Officer Otto, the cop who triggered the fall of the 30th. But when Morgenthau was told, he would only agree to postpone the arrest, not to drop the case. Why didn't Morgenthau let Barry Brown off the hook? We're talking about turf wars here, where the last guy in the world who should be targeted is caught in the middle. The DA's office, which declined an on-camera interview, categorically denies any such political motivation. Just after the 60 Minutes piece airs, Brown hears from his attorney, Richard Emery, who tells him that the DA's office has proposed a resolution. Richard said, hey, they've made an offer that if you resign, they won't prosecute you. He says, I love to put this case on trial. I'll put every single one of them on trial. You just say the word. Fuck these guys. We will take them to the cleaners. There's no jury that will convict you. You will be lionized, notwithstanding the fact that you'll admit a perjury. This is jury nullification in its pristine form. No jury will convict you for the behavior which you undertook under the supervision of the very people who are accusing you. Richard said, we're going to have to make a decision here. What do you want to do? At that point, I had been through so much, and I knew that the worst thing for me would have been to continue as a cop. I would have always been looking over my back. I don't consider myself a rat at all, but that's how I would be considered. That's how I was considered by police officers. I wasn't even 30 years old. There was an opportunity to, to have a new life, to, to move forward and rebuild. And it was the right decision for me to leave. Two weeks after the 60 Minutes feature, Barry Brown resigns from the police department. In the newspapers, Commissioner Bratton calls Brown's case a tragedy and says that as a field associate, Brown, quote, performed that role admirably in the face of great adversity. But others in the press weren't so kind. The Daily News said that although the Mullen Commission had found willful blindness in the police department, it too was blind and deaf when it came to Brown. After Brown's resignation, Frank O'Hara is back at his job at the New York State Organized Crime Task Force, 
but not for long. When Dennis Vacco became New York State Attorney General, he made the rounds, uh, like Malin and Joe Ormeo did to the different prosecutors and said, I'm the new kid on the block and anything we can work together with and how I can help you or you help me, uh, we'd like to have a relationship with you. My information is Castleman and Morgenthau were there. And he was told that as long as you have Frank O'Hara at the Organized Crime Task Force, we would find it very hard to do a joint investigation with you. And they ended my law enforcement career. Dan Castleman. Well, I hate to say this, but Frank obviously thinks I think a lot more about him than I do. Do you really think I would use the first meeting with the new attorney general to try to screw an employee of his? I mean, I didn't spend my time plotting revenge against members of the Malin Commission. I had much better things to do. I lived in the office next to Robert Morgenthau. And this is not the first time I've heard that I'm responsible for something that I knew absolutely nothing about. Dan Castleman's loyalty to Robert Morgenthau was unwavering. And in 2005, he was rewarded for it. I had been offered a job by a consulting company. And it was going to triple my salary. I went into Morgenthau and said, this might be a good opportunity for me. And I'm thinking about it. What do you think? And he said, well, I always thought you would succeed me. And I will support you to succeed me. And I said, I'm on board. I'll stay another four years on the promise that you'll support me. An endorsement from Morgenthau, Manhattan's longest-serving district attorney ever, would be enough to get Castleman elected. And in 2009, after 29 years serving under Morgenthau, Castleman prepares for his run to be Manhattan's next DA. But just before his announcement, Morgenthau reneges on his promise and puts his support behind someone else. At the last minute, he backed out, and that's the day I quit. He fucked me over. It was very much a betrayal. Thirty years ago, when this case began, Michael Horowitz was a young prosecutor in the Southern District. Now. He's the Inspector General of the United States Department of Justice. As a general rule, people understand how challenging and difficult law enforcement is and how important and central law enforcement is to our ongoing civilized society and our democracy. And when these cases happen, they are concerning, disturbing, and they are events that you really can't turn your head away from because they're so compelling in an awful way about how things are done. 
But yet, in a story like this, it leads to a tremendous amount of food for thought, huge issues, ethical issues, moral dilemmas that there's no right answer to. And so when you hear everything that's happened, there are so many places you can pause, stop, and say, how would I have dealt with that? Or what is it like to be in that situation? What is it like to be in Barry Brown's shoes? What is it like to be in George Nova's position when you've been arrested and now you're wearing a wire? How do you deal with this as a judge or a jury? Everybody listening to this case and hearing about it can stop and say, if I'm a judge, what kind of sentence would I have given to George Nova if he came before me? You know, one of the things that I did in talking to every officer who cooperated with us is try and understand what made them cross the line. How did this happen? And to a person, I came away with the view that not one of them went into the job thinking they were going to be corrupt or stealing money. None of them went into the job like that. How this happened and what to do about it was precisely why the Mollen Commission was formed. Its final report, which you can find online, is titled Anatomy of Failure, A Path for Success. The report addressed the ways in which the culture of the NYPD at the time created the environment that led cops down that slippery slope. And it included recommendations for how to change that culture. The police department adopted some of them, including an overhaul of the field associate program. Its biggest recommendation, though, which it believed to be the key to reducing future corruption, was to create an independent outside monitor to be a watchdog over the NYPD's anti-corruption response. But the agencies already responsible for oversight, like the NYPD itself, and prosecutors like Robert Morgenthau, opposed the idea. They didn't want another group looking over their shoulder. And neither did the mayor, Rudy Giuliani, who ultimately killed the proposal. Mollen Commission Chief Counsel Joe Armeo. After the commission was over and the mayor and the police commissioner refused to adopt the outside monitor recommendation that was at the center of the commission's report, the New York City Council proposed legislation to create an outside monitor. And I was asked to come and testify. And when I came into the city council hearing room, I saw Commissioner Ray Kelly sitting waiting to testify. And I just immediately thought to myself, given my past experience with him, oh yeah, he, he's here to say that this is just, you know, unnecessary and a burden and not something that the city council should adopt. And then when he was called to testify, which was before me, he gave a glowing recommendation of the outside monitor, thought it was the way to go, and I was absolutely shocked. And so the hearing took a break, and I saw Commissioner Kelly at the end of the hearing room, and I said, gee, Commissioner, I'm 
really surprised that you just publicly endorsed the commission, the monitor that you were so much opposed to a couple of years ago. And he just looked at me and he was puzzled. He said, you're surprised? I said, then I was police commissioner. Now I'm not. And so I understood immediately that a lot of the value of the recommendations we made would be seen through the lens of politics rather than just pure benefit to the department and to the city. And uh, I learned a lot from that one comment. So when I look back, I have a mixture of feelings, a great sense of accomplishment, yet at the same time, a little bit of sadness that what we were able to accomplish didn't have longer lasting effects. But now, 30 years later, as I look back, I'm just amazed at how much we were able to accomplish in those two years. And hopefully, we won't have to do it again in another 20 years. Up until the Mollen Commission, massive corruption scandals in the NYPD had come every 20 years for a century. But one of the biggest takeaways from the Mollen Commission's report is that these scandals happen because of a lack of proper supervision and accountability. And on the heels of the report, that's something the NYPD focused on, starting from the top brass and down the ranks. The department hasn't had a scandal of this magnitude since the Dirty 30. David Kennedy, the John Jay criminal justice professor we heard from earlier this season, helped the Mollen Commission come up with its recommendations. Kennedy says that effectively fighting corruption begins with one fundamental imperative, the will to do it. It's pretty simple. When the department cares about these issues, it will stay on top of them, and it can do that pretty effectively. And when it doesn't care about these issues, it will find ways to step away, it will find ways to cover things up, it will find ways not to respond. And the question then becomes, how do you make the department care? After I left the police department, I went to dinner at a West End restaurant on 113th Street and Broadway. And I came out of the restaurant, I was holding my daughter in my arms. She was about two years old. And a black car pulled up with tinted windows, slammed on the brakes. The windows rolled down and a guy screamed out, Brown, is that you? Yeah, that's you. And I looked up. And it was two of the biggest drug dealers from the 30th Precinct. And I thought, oh man, this is it. I'm dead. And I've got my daughter in my arms. I was panicked. I didn't know what to do. There was nowhere for me to go. So I just walked straight up to the car. I walked straight up to him. He said to me, hey, Brown. You did the right thing, man. And the window went up, 
they drove away. In the end, everything got so twisted and so warped and drug dealers saw me as a good guy and cops saw me as the enemy. Everything was upside down and spinning. And I had to get off the merry-go-round. And I've moved on with my life, you know, when I've claimed my life back and that's the most important thing to me, you know, just to just to continue to to move on and see what's next. Barry Brown is a good guy, a nice guy, a good human being. Barry did his job. Barry took on a role that most people won't take on. The hero of this story is Barry Brown. I don't think he was a hero. I think he was put in a terribly difficult position, but I don't think he's a heroic figure at all. I think he was badly taken advantage of by a police department that didn't look out for him sufficiently. But I think it's complicated. If he is a hero, he's a tragic hero. I don't consider myself to be a hero. I just consider myself to be a stand-up guy who tried his best to do the right thing in a very difficult situation. And I think it's it's all based on how my parents raised me and, and the fact that I couldn't allow these things to continue to go on and not speak up and not say anything about it. I took an oath to become a police officer then I would do it all over again. I risked my my life, my job, and my career to, to report the right thing, but I don't consider myself a hero. I just consider myself a, an honest cop who did the best he could. Thank you for listening to The Set. The Set is created, written, and directed by me, Zach Levitt. Executive produced by me and Chris Corcoran. Produced by Perry Kroll and Ian Mont. Edited by Perry Kroll and Alistair Sherman. Research by me and Ian Mont. Mixing and mastering by Bill Schultz. Original music by Joel Goodman. Marketing, PR, production coordination, sales and operations by Maura Curran, Josefina Francis, Kurt Courtney, Hilary Schuff, Lauren Vieira, Lucas Santrone, Sean Cherry, Lizzie Roberti, and Danny Cutrick. With special thanks to J.D. Crowley, Jenna Weiss-Berman, Leah Reese dennis Tim Clark, Craig Cox, Callum Togus, Rob Morandi, and Eric Donald. Sophia Franklin, and if you don't already know, listen up. 
My mini series is live now each and every Monday and the only person missing is you. We're dating, we're dumping, we're learning, and we're tapping into all the feels that originally brought us together. Listen and follow Sophia with an F on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.